to the book of Ephesians. Last week we started a new sermon series in the book of Ephesians, and so um, we will be continuing that this morning. And this morning, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, the, the rest of chapter 1 as we continue in Ephesians. And um, yeah, as I mentioned, Rome's going to be preaching next week, and uh, we'll have uh, our, our intern, Nate, is going to be around uh, starting this week. And so um, he'll be preaching some this summer, I'll be preaching some, Rome will be preaching some, and Chris as well. And so we'll be kind of working through this book together uh, as we look at what it means to, to see the glory of the triune God. As we talked about last week, uh, Ephesians has some emphasis on the Trinity and the nature of God in the Trinity, and we're going to be looking at attributes of God as displayed throughout the book of Ephesians and looking at how uh, those things play out with an emphasis on the triune nature of God. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit emphasis on seeing that in the text. Well, 1 John 2, 15 through 17 says this. Do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. Why is it that when we're told not to love the world, we fall in love with the world? Why is it that telling me that the pleasures of this world are fleeting, they don't last, they're not of the Father, why does that not make me run to the eternal God and run away from them? Now, I know, right, we we talked about this last week, we know that we are loved by God But I still tend to love the things of this world. So what should we do about that? What should we do if we find ourselves in a place where we continue to love the things of this world, even though we know God loves us, even though we know he is great, and we know that these things are not lasting? Should we simply try to stuff our desires down, to make them smaller, to to hold them back? Should we run away from the world? Should we run uh, as early uh, church fathers and monks did to, to get away right into the wilderness to avoid the pleasures of the world? Is that how we should do this? Well, I don't think so, and I think this text this morning is gonna answer that question for us here in Ephesians. I think the answer for us is to actually awaken our desires and direct them to the proper place. See, I think the problem we have in loving the world too much is that we are actually too bored with God. The way that we love the world too much is because we're too bored with God. You see, our hearts, whoops, our hearts are like a cup. Our hearts are like a cup. And the desires of the world seek to fill our hearts. Now, some ways in which we think about uh, um, our hearts being like a cup and getting rid of the desires of the world is to try and make the cup empty. Just try and keep the cup empty. If we can just empty our hearts out of the desires of the world, we'll be fine, right? But how does that go for us? 
When you see in yourself a desire that is too much for something in the world, and, and you try and suppress it, you try and make it go away, you try and empty your heart of that, does that work very well? Maybe for a moment, but then guess what? Something else gets poured in. Because the nature of a cup is to be full. It's always trying to be full. So when we try and empty it, it gets filled up. Now, I have nothing against this liquid here, but it's representing the desires of the world. I think it's red. I don't know why, but it's just a picture. So nothing against that cup. But this, this reality is that we seek to fill up our hearts no matter what. And we're unable uh, to make them empty. And so instead of trying to make the cup empty, the cup of our hearts empty, we actually need to overflow it with something greater. We actually need to pour something greater into our hearts and to overflow it with this new thing, to overflow it with living water from the Lord. In his... uh, Sermon, a sermon that is, is, has been super influential in my life. It's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Thomas Chalmers says this, It is seldom that any of our tastes are made to disappear by a mere process of natural extinction. At least it is very seldom that this is done through the instrumentality of reasoning. It may be done by excessive pampering, but it is almost never done by the mere force of mental determination. But what cannot be destroyed may be dispossessed, and one taste may be made to give way to another and to lose its power entirely as the reigning affection of the mind. What Chalmers is saying here is that it is very rare for us to convince ourselves that we don't like something that we like, right? Like when's the last time you decided this thing that I love, I'm just going to stop loving it? And you were able to convince yourself that this thing, whatever it is, you were able to just stop loving it. It just doesn't work that way, does it? And so if we are to actually move forward, if we are to actually displace the love of the world with the love of God, we actually need to replace it with a better love. That's what Chalmers is saying here. The way to to move something out of my heart is to find something greater. That's the way we can move forward, is by finding something greater for my heart to love. Psalm 23, 5 says, You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessing. This is what we want to try and do is to overflow the cups of our hearts with living water from the Lord so that the love of this world is displaced by the love of God. Now, that sounds great, right? But how do we do that? Like, how do we actually do that? Well, I think the only way for us to do this is by viewing the triune God and his glory. The only way to break out of our boredom with God is not to deny that we feel some boredom with God or ignore it, but to overwhelm it with great desire. And to do that, we need glory. What is glory? We talk about God's glory a lot, but what is it to describe God's glory? Well, glory, the word means brilliance, splendor, majesty, 
brightness, right? These lights are bright, but the sun is gloriously bright, right? Like you can't even look at it and stare directly at it, even though it's really far away, right? It is gloriously brilliant. The glory of God, then, is his fame, majesty, brightness, holiness, and splendor. The glory of God is a bit like light. We can see light rays every once in a while, right? You know, like when you see like a ray of sunshine. But it's rare, right, that we see a ray of sunshine. In general, we just see everything around us by the light. God's glory is that way in that it is all around us and we understand the world and can see the world in all of its brilliance because of the glory of God, but rarely do we see it directly, its brilliance directly like a ray of light. Remember, we were in the book of Exodus. See, I told you we'd get to Exodus. Just, you know, we're just going to jump in just this tiny little piece of Exodus. Where is it at here? Uh, The Lord replied, and so this is Exodus 33. This is a little bit further from where we were. But Moses is speaking to the Lord after receiving the law, and and God's saying, you guys need to go. And Moses says, like, you have to come with us. We're, We're not going anywhere if you don't come along. And the Lord replied, I will personally go with you, Moses, and I will give you rest. Everything will be fine for you. Then Moses said, if you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave this place. How will anyone know that you look favorably on me and me and on your people if you don't go with us? For your presence among us sets your people and me apart from all other people on the earth. The Lord replied to Moses, I will indeed do what you have asked, for I look favorably on you and I know you by name. Moses responded, then show me your glorious presence. The Lord replied, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will call out my name, Yahweh, before you. For I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. But you may not look directly at my face, for no one may see my face and live. The Lord continued, look, stand near me on this rock. As my glorious presence passes by, I will hide you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and let you see me from behind, but my face will not be seen. This is a really odd passage, right? Like Moses is like, Lord, I want to see you. Let me see you. And the Lord is like, okay, well, it won't go well for you, man. Like no one can see my face and live. Like you cannot comprehend my glory, So what I'm going to do is I'm going to hide you in the rock. I'm going to hide you on the side of this cliff. And I'm going to pass by you and I'm going to cover you. And then as I go past, I'll remove my hand and you can see my back. Now, what does it mean for God to show up in this way? I don't think that this means that God is, uh, you know, like some giant covering uh, Moses' hand or Moses' face. For humans to understand God, he speaks in language that we can understand and comprehend. And so God is not passing by physically as a person, I don't think, in this instance, um, though obviously he does take on physical form in Jesus. Uh, but he's passing by in all of his glory, and, and Moses is able to see him from behind. And it is so brilliant that Moses is undone. Right? Anytime someone sees the glory of God, they are undone. And this is just seeing 
God pass by, right? Just, just you can only see me from behind. You cannot see my face. It's like looking directly into the sun. You can't look directly into the sun for very long before it does damage to you. We cannot see the glory of God and live. So Moses gets to see the, the back of God's glory. Now, remember this, because we're going to come back to this, all right? So remember Moses' experience of this. But what we need is an experience of God's glory. And I think what Ephesians is going to show us is that we actually get something far greater than Moses got. All right, so let's go to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, starting in verse 15. Ever since I first heard of your strong faith, In the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly. Okay, so Paul is setting up in this passage. He is praying for the Ephesians. What is he praying for? Uh, This is something we want to pay attention to is what is Paul praying that the, the Ephesians experience? Because that's what I'm hoping that we see that we need to experience as well. Asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Already, again, you see Father and Son together, right? Paul is going to continue to use the language of the Trinity that we talked about last week throughout this book to describe who God is. So he's asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. Spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called, his holy people, who are his rich and glorious inheritance. I pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. So Paul is praying for them to to grow in wisdom, that God would help them grow in their understanding of God, their knowledge of God, understanding this hope that they have, and understanding the power that they have, the same power that raised Christ from the dead. Well, Paul says elsewhere in Romans that the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, right? So again, we have Father, Son, and Spirit at work. The power that is within us is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, which is the power of the Holy Spirit. So as Paul prays, he's praying for you to grow in an understanding of the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in you. But how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, I think the key is the phrase that Paul uses, that your hearts will be flooded with light. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light. Paul finishes this prayer by saying, now he is far above, speaking of Christ, he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. 
And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ, who fills all things with himself. All things everywhere with himself. So Paul's prayer is that we would grow in understanding this power of God in us, the power of the Spirit in us, grow in understanding the confident hope that God has given us in Jesus, and grow in our knowledge of God by, be, by having our hearts flooded with light. Rather than describing our hearts like a cup needing to be overflowed, Paul's describing our hearts needing to be filled with light, needed to be flooded with light. You see, we talked about earlier our hearts being filled with uh, unholy desires, right? The desires and love of the world and needing to overflow it with a desire for God. Well, Paul is describing our hearts as needing to be flooded with light, meaning that there is darkness there. Well, just like we can't really remove things from the, the, the cups of our hearts, right? We can't really remove those things effectively. We need to overflow it. The same is true of darkness. You can't remove darkness. You can only add light to get rid of darkness. So how do we add light to our hearts, right? This is, this is all a promise that we're going somewhere here, all right? We're all leading to this point of understanding what does it mean to have our hearts flooded with light? This is the connection with God's glory and with overcoming our boredom with God, right? And you're like, wait a second, that doesn't make any sense. I'm bored already. I'm bored right now. What are you talking about? Trust me, we're getting somewhere, all right? So, so to overcome this idea of boredom with God so that we would lay aside the desires of this world and embrace our desire for God fully, we need our hearts to be flooded with light, so to understand this, I want to look over at 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. Paul is speaking here in 2 Corinthians of uh, this ministry that we have in the New Covenant versus the ministry of the Old Covenant. And he talks about how Moses had to wear a veil after he would meet with God, right? You remember this? where Moses would go into the tabernacle to meet with God, and then he would have to put a veil over his face because he was so glorious. His face would shine, and the people of God couldn't look upon him. They were like, cover your face, man. And so he would have to wear this veil. Well, Paul says in the new covenant, this veil gets removed. The veil is removed so that the people of God can see the glory of God. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of God, the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. Therefore, since God in his mercy has given us this new way, we never give up. We reject all shameful deeds and underhanded methods. We don't try to trick anyone or distort the word of God. We tell the truth before God, and all who are honest know this. If the good news we preach is hidden behind a veil, it is hidden only from people who are perishing. Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. You see, we don't go around preaching about ourselves. We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we ourselves are your servants for Jesus' sake. 
For God who said, let there be light in the darkness has made this light shine in our hearts so that we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God and not from ourselves. You see, there is a veil upon the world. Sin and Satan hold this veil over our hearts, and it prevents light from getting in. It prevents light from flooding our hearts. But when the gospel is proclaimed, when the good news of who Jesus is, that God is reconciling the world to himself through the person and work of Jesus, his son, when God speaks and the Holy Spirit lifts the veil and transforms the heart, we can see the glory of God with the eyes of our hearts in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, Moses wanted to see God's face. He wanted to see the glory of God, and he wanted to see his glorious face, and he was only allowed to see his back. The temple, when the temple is built, the temple is filled with the glory of God, it says, like smoke, and it fills the whole temple. No one's allowed to go in. They can't even make it in because the glory is so great. But us, what do we get? With the message of the gospel, we get to see the glory of God by the power of the Spirit with our hearts in the face of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Do you guys see what this is saying? When Paul says, I want your hearts to be flooded with light, I'm praying that God would flood your hearts with light. What he's saying is, I want you to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit working in your heart. You see, Jesus is like the lamp to God's glorious light. He makes the Father the glory of the Father visible. And to see that, the Spirit opens the eyes of our hearts so that we have this triune God redeeming us. The Spirit opening our hearts so that we can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus through the message of the gospel. Revelation 21, 23 says, Speaking of the city that is to come, the new heavens, new earth, the city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illumines the city, and the Lamb is its light. See, Jesus is like a lamp to God's glory. Remember how I said we don't often see rays of sun, right? We see everything around it, but sometimes we see that ray of sun, of sunlight. Jesus is is the ray of God's glory. It's the direct view of God's glory. We see God's glory everywhere, but if you want to see God's glory fully, look to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we see God's glory fully. And what is that glory like? Well, it's the glory of a creator, a creator who has created all of the cosmos, the entire universe, He has created it by saying, let there be light. By speaking it into existence, he created the entire universe. 
places that we have yet to see. I mean, it was incredible. Did you guys watch the, the Mars rover land when, when NASA sent that Mars rover? It was awesome. It was like, this is crazy. We are seeing like live image. We can barely get this live stream to work. But they are like, we're like watching live from Mars. That's crazy. You know what also is crazy? The amount of technology and money spent to do that thing. And it is the closest planet to us. Right? The whole point of the universe is to say, you guys, in your glory, are tiny. You're like a fragile clay jar. It's incredible that we were able to look upon Mars. But that's nothing compared to the glory of the entire universe. God knows each star by name. Not only that, he also knows the depths of every creature created on the globe. Like, there are things we have not yet discovered in the deeps of the ocean because we can't see them or find them. And God knows them all. God knows them all. He is glorious. The glory of God as sustainer. Colossians says that the, word, that the universe is upheld by the power of the word of Jesus. Right? So the universe is held together by the power of God continuing to speak it into existence. He sustains every breath in your life. Imagine... Right? Every day, you trust the Lord, whether you believe in Jesus or not, because you go to sleep. When you go to sleep, you are not in charge of breathing or of anything, right? Like, you're just there. How, how do we do that? Because the Lord sustains us. He is a glorious sustainer. He is a glorious provider. In your own life, you have testimony of the ways in which God has provided in only ways that God could have provided. Right? Imagine your life, right? The, the, the craziness of one circumstance being different in your life, and your life looks totally different. Like one minor change 10, 15 years ago, whatever, and your life is totally not what it is today. And yet God knows each of those things in all of your lives and the way in which all of those things interact. Talk about a logistical nightmare. And yet the glory of the Lord and his mind knows them all. God is ruler. No one will mock God. Ultimately, no one will stop his plan or his purpose. The idea that 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 it is possible to say, Lord, I don't need you, I don't want you, and I get to stiff arm you for eternity is crazy. That's why the popular notions of eternal judgment are very unhelpful, right? Like the popular notion is that like God rules heaven and Satan rules hell. Like, no, no, no. If you read the scripture, Satan is thrown into hell. God rules hell because he's ruler. No one will ultimately say, well, I didn't want you, and I don't need you, and I'm not going to have you for eternity. No, that's not how it works. God is ruler of the universe. He's ultimate lawgiver. 
in the glory of God, the, the, the law that God has given is glorious. It makes sense of reality. It makes sense of our lives. It is the way that life ought to be lived. And then the glory of God reaches its high point in his redemption. God, in his glory, in his majesty, set his love upon sinful people. We talked about this last week. God, in all of his glory, knowing all of the universe, loves you. And loves you so much that he's willing to endure the cost of buying you, of redeeming you, of shedding his own blood in the person of his son, Jesus, so that you can be loved, so that you can be forgiven, so that everything that has been cursed and broken can be reversed and all of creation can be brought back into the presence of God and redeemed. So that things that are broken and don't work right would work right again. So that all of the universe would put together itself in glorious unity. There is no more interesting a being in the universe than God. There is no more glorious a light to behold than God. So, if we find ourselves entangled in sin, in the love of the world, a desire for its riches and its pleasures, then I can assure you the reason we're entangled in sin is because we are bored with God. If we find ourselves apathetic to the plight of the oppressed, the orphan, the widow, the vulnerable, then the abused, apathetic to the cause of justice, then I can assure you that you are bored with God. If we find ourselves lacking spiritual disciplines, prayer, fasting, tithing, service, reading our Bibles, all of those things, if we're lacking in those ways, then I can assure you that we are bored with God. Certainly, we are to rid our hearts of sin. We are to kill or mortify sin in our lives. We are to run away from sin. But how do we do that? Not by trying to rid our hearts of desire, but by going on the adventure of God's glory. By going on the adventure of finding God's glory. What can we do to rid ourselves of boredom? Well, you can't. Not on your own. Remember, Paul is praying that God would flood their hearts with light. You can't do that on your own. Right? What is, what is Paul saying in, Ephes- or in uh, 2 Corinthians? That God speaks light to our hearts, and then we see the glory of God. This isn't like this thing that you go out and discover. It has to be revealed to you. It has to be revealed to you. Right? I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called, his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light. You cannot make yourself be in awe of something. Like you can't just work up awe. Like, oh man, I really wanna be impressed by that thing. Let me, like I'm so impressed. No, like you have to go find something super impressive. And your heart has to respond to it, right? 
You cannot do that, but you can travel to find inspiring things that will produce awe and awaken your heart's desire. You could go find those things, right? You can't make your heart love the word of God and see the glory of God in the face of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. But you can go to him in prayer. You can sit at his feet. You can go seek to try and find him. Right? It is not as though, like, like if you were wanting to be inspired by the awe of nature, you could look, like you could get out your phone and do a Google search for like glorious places, right? And that might do something, but it's nothing like going to see it, right? The same is true with the glory of God. You don't have to Google search for God's glory. You have it right in front of you. The Spirit of God lives inside you. You can go directly to him without having him hold back his hand over you and just passing by so you can see his back. You have the Spirit of God in you to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You can sit at his feet and learn from him. You can put yourself before God and like Jacob, wrestle with him until he blesses you with a glimpse of his glory. If you're bored with God, you need to wrestle like Jacob does and say, God, don't leave me until you bless me. I'm holding on to you until you bless me with an image of your glory. We can do that. We have that ability to go and find him in his word and sit with him until he will do it. Last week I said, what would it look like if, you're, if every day in your life you said, Am I living in such a way that I know I am loved by God? This week, I want you to add to that, am I seeing glimpses of God's glory? And if not, let me sit with him until he shows me. Let me wrestle with him until he shows me, right? Because Paul acknowledges in 2 Corinthians that this is gonna be hard, right? What does he say? We're like clay pots, with the treasure of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ inside the clay pot. Like, how do you hold on to that in a clay pot? You can't. It's hard. Clay pot breaks easily, right? We are broken. We are fallible. We are weak. And so it's gonna be hard. It's gonna wax and it's gonna wane. Our hearts are gonna be desiring something else and we've gotta bring it back. This is the process of what we do But we can, like Moses, say, God, we will go no further unless you show us your glory. Unless you go with us. We're not going anywhere. I'm going to sit with you until you show me your glory. Sometimes we approach God's word asking God to show us what we ought to do with our lives. The better question is to approach God's word to say, God, will you show me your glory? And that will reveal to us what we are to do with our lives. We'll get there. But first, we've got to go to the text and say, God, show me how glorious you are. Show me how glorious your nature is. We can be dependent upon the Holy Spirit and say, God, make this dead heart alive. Wake up this dead heart. And if you're here this morning or watching online and you're not a Christian, you're not following Jesus, friend, this is the only way for salvation. 
is that the Holy Spirit would work in your heart to awaken your dead heart. So that God would speak to you and say, light out of darkness. That God would awaken in you a desire for his glory above all other things. And if you sense in yourself a desire for God's glory above all things, follow that. Follow that desire. Follow that desire and cry out to God, God, show me your glory in the gospel. And if you're a Christian, you're trusting in Jesus and him alone, the only way to awaken your heart is saying, God, let light shine in the darkness. This is why we study, dig deep into this idea of the Trinity, the doctrines of God's glory and grace, and unpack the word, right? Sometimes it's hard to dig into those things. Like, to to try to wrap our minds around the Trinity is like a really challenging thing. And sometimes we think, well, that's like deep academic theology. It's boring. Like, let's go do something else. It is difficult to think through, to wrestle through. But so is a mountain hike. But why do you go on a mountain hike? Because of the overpass, where you get to see the vistas of God's glory in creation. It's the same thing with God's word. That we dig into God's word. We do the hard work of studying those things. Why? Not just as an end of itself, so that we get to the place in which we see this is who God is, and he is glorious. Also, we can do that by actually hiking a mountain and seeing, right? Because like God's glory is, is outside, right? So, so we should do both, right? It's not just like in the, in the text, but also in nature and experiencing those things and in fellowship with one another and in all of the ways in which we create glorious things together. Like all of that stuff is ways that we can see God's glory. Certainly it's not just in the text, but the way that we see it so clearly is in the person of Jesus as we understand the gospel. And when we look out upon God's glory, what happens? Well, what, what did Paul say in 2 Corinthians 3? So all, who have, all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. We see him, and we become like him. So if you find yourself entangled in sin, If you find yourself not experiencing the fruit of the Spirit in your life, don't tell yourself, stop sinning and be more holy. Go look at the glory of the holy Jesus. View it. Worship him. Marvel in him. If you lack patience, view the patience of God with sinful humans. See it. Worship him and be transformed to be like him. All of these ways in which we want to be like Jesus in personal holiness and in public holiness, in piety and in justice, the fruit of the Spirit being seen in us, all of those things, we need to see him. We need to gaze upon him. We need to worship him and trust that the Spirit of God will transform us to be more and more like Jesus, the glory of God. 
Let's pray together. Lord, we are unable to do this. We can't make ourselves be in awe of you. And so, Lord, we need you to awaken our hearts. Our hearts are weak. They break. They're fallible. Lord, we need you to shine into our hearts with your glory. We need you to overflow our hearts with the living water of Jesus. Lord, would you open our eyes? Would you help us to just dig into who you are? Would you reveal yourself to us, Lord? Would you show us your glory that we would be transformed, that we would experience your glory, and that you would be more and more famous in our hearts, in our lives, and in our world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.